Hello, everyone. If we could start uh, settling down again. We have now uh, been moving through our order of service, and we have come to the point where we will now be hearing from God's Word. And to read God's Word for us is Melissa. So, Melissa, if you can come on up. 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 to 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn, your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for him, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all, are all these your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Melissa. Now, earlier on in this week, I had a chance to talk to a congregation member about her experience entering into the marketing world. Now, upon graduating, her mentor told her and gave her this advice, that she needed her own personal brand. Personal brand being something that is unique to her, something that defines and distinguishes her, uh, distinguishes her character and her personality. Now, something that will help her to stand out among the rest of her 500 graduating students with her. Now, here's the thing. Each of those students also had a mentor who said a similar advice to them. You need your own personal brand. So you can only imagine that upon graduating, there is a fierce competition with everyone trying to make the cut so that their personal branding will be noticed. Now, those of us working today not much may be different. 
We're always improving our own version of our personal brand. We're striving hard to have that uh, competitive edge. And why do we do that? That's because we want to stay relevant at our workplace. We hope that our personal branding will continually uh, give our company, our bosses, reason to give us shelf space in that job. It's what distinguishes us and it's what helps drive us. But in fact, not only in work, but I'd like to say that perhaps in life, all of us have a personal brand of our own. It's that identity that makes you, you. And it's the purpose, and the purpose of that is for our surrounding audience to know and accept you for who you are. It's what makes you needed and accepted in society. So personal brand shows your peers that you're worthy of their attention, you're worthy of their respect. And it's in that way that you present yourself to others so that they are able to see you and notice you. Now when it came to the importance of that kind of outward presentation, things were similar back in the day in the ancient Near East civilization. In that time, they lived in a patriarchal society. And personal branding meant that people noticed the kind of following traits. You had to be the firstborn son, and as the firstborn son, you had the exclusive birthright to your family's inheritance and honor. In fact, the firstborn son inherited a double portion of that family estate. They're the, fam uh, they're the head of the family, and so the family line continued through them. And that firstborn son carried the weight and the future of that family name, and so society looked to the firstborns as the natural leaders of the community. Now, it's not surprising that these were similar outward qualifications that people looked for in a king. You had to be a firstborn because firstborns were the responsible ones. They're the ones who took care of their younger uh, sisters who were not married, their younger brothers. Uh, they, were, they had authority over the house. And they were to be tall. They were to be strong, capable of going to war. They were worthy of carrying the nation's hope. Now, in our narrative today, in the passage that was just read, we see that there is a search for a king. And now there are two different approaches that are taken in this search. An approach by man and an approach by God. And these two different approaches will ground us for the two points that we'll look at. Firstly, that man looks outward. And secondly, that God looks inward. So let's look at our first point together. Man looks outward. To give a little bit of context to where we are in our story, we have to also understand that Israel, this nation of Israel, didn't always have a king. They were actually the odd ones out compared to the surrounding nations around them. Instead of having a king, judges ruled over them, of among whom Samuel was their judge. But now the thing about Samuel was that he was an elderly judge. He was not the typical kind of warrior material that you hope to see. And Israel wanted a warrior leader who could unite the tribes against their surrounding enemy nations. Israel, they also wanted a human king, like all the other nations, to rally behind. A human king who would stand tall to protect them. And in fact, in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, they say to Samuel, give us a king that we may also be like all the nations. 
and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. You see, the people of Israel, they wanted someone who looked like the kings of the other nations. They wanted someone, they wanted a leader who was a firstborn, who was wealthy, who had status, who had power, who was strong, who was capable of leading Israel to many victories. This kind of king would be a king that's worthy of their hope. And so when they see Saul, he was a firstborn of a ruling class of wealth and power from his tribe. He stood a head taller than all the others. So in their eyes, automatically, he had the outward appearance of what it took to be a king. And so he was chosen by the people to be Israel's first king. But in the previous chapter leading up to where we are today, Saul would come to disobey God. And because of that, God rejects him. And he wouldn't end up being the one to end up establishing the Israelite kingdom. He wouldn't be the one to conquer and subdue the surrounding enemy nations. He wouldn't be the one to redeem the dignity of the nation of Israel. And the people's hope in Saul would end up being a disappointment for their king had fallen away from following God. And this is why in verse 1 of our passage today, we see Samuel grieving. He's grieving for what could have been but what was lost. The initial outward qualification of Saul's leadership didn't meet the hopes and expectations for a God-fearing king to lead their nation under his holy name. But as the story in our narrative begins, God's plan doesn't end with Saul. In fact, he's already on the move onto the next stage in his greater plan. He sends Samuel out to look for a new king. But this time around, this king will be different. Why? The people chose their first king, Saul, but this time, it's God who has chosen the next king. And this king won't be filling up the stat sheet like Saul did, meeting the outward requirements and expectations in that cultural setting. He wasn't going to be like all the other kings of the nations. In fact, he was going to be different. And it all begins with the new king's hometown. As Samuel is sent to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now Bethlehem, Bethlehem of all places, This was not like Jerusalem, which was an established city. Bethlehem was actually so small that it wasn't even listed in the usual registry of towns or in not-so-modern-day context, the yellow book, our phone books. Bethlehem wouldn't be listed there. Bethlehem was so small, it it was located on a rocky spur at the edge of a desert. And at first glance, it seemed very insignificant, very trivial, No one of importance, status, or influence could ever come from a place like Bethlehem. But here's the thing. Bethlehem happens to have some very important historical ties to the new king that God had in mind. Because Bethlehem was actually the hometown of a person named Naomi, who's the mother-in-law of Ruth. And Ruth would come to marry a man named Boaz who was a descendant of the tribe of Judah, which was one of the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. And centuries and centuries ago in the book of Genesis, it had been prophesied about Judah that the scepter will not depart from it, meaning 
that God's chosen king was always supposed to come from the line of Judah. And do you know who the grandson of Ruth and Boaz was? It was Jesse the Bethlehemite. So it's no mere coincidence that Samuel right now was sent to Bethlehem. God was setting up something here that no one could see just from the outside appearance. In fact, Samuel, Samuel himself had a hard time connecting all the dots right away. I mean, how could someone with kingly qualifications come from a place like this? Compared to a large city like Jerusalem where all the capable firstborn leaders could probably be found, Bethlehem was too small. It was too unknown. You can compare it to the top leaders that you would hope to find in Ontario. You would expect them to be in Toronto or in the GTA. Compared to finding them at a very, very small town that's north of Algonquin Park. But Bethlehem was not the kind of place that kings come from. But despite his doubts, Samuel, he still goes. And on top of that, Samuel was also afraid to die. He was afraid to die. He says to God, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he's going to kill me. Because in the latest encounter with Saul, Samuel renounced Saul's kingship for disobeying God. And so they parted ways never to see each other again. And they were not in good relationship with each other. If Saul had heard that Samuel was gone to anoint a new king, he would have been outraged. This would have been, reason, this would have been treason, which would have been a very good reason to kill Samuel. But Samuel still goes. Here's some quick implications from Samuel's response. Sometimes, God may call you to something that's out of the ordinary, something that doesn't line up nicely with your plans. It may seem dangerous, risky, outside of your comfort zone. Seems counterintuitive, countercultural. It may look like it's bound for failure. But when God calls, the Spirit's prompting in the heart, your response should be as Samuel does. Don't overthink, just simply obey and go. This doesn't mean that it's going to be easy or risk-free, but you can trust in a sovereign God whose plan has always included you and your entire course of life and he has good in store for those who love him. Simple obedience can sometimes be the best obedience. And we see this in the way that Samuel just obeys and goes. Now, imagine Jesse's reaction on the receiving end. He hears that Samuel has just entered his town, his small town. And this is Samuel the highly honored prophet, the last remaining judge of Israel. He's a really big deal. He's a man of high influence and power. In fact, in the past, he's helped lead the nation of Israel to victory against the Philistines. So he's recognized and revered as a man of God. And you can see this from the reaction of the trembling elders as they approach him, asking, do you come peaceably? 
these elders were afraid that Samuel, someone of uh, Samuel's stature, coming to them could have meant he's coming with some kind of disciplinary actions. But yet Samuel says, I come peaceably. It must have crossed Jesse's mind as he sees Samuel entering. What on earth is he doing here in my hometown, in Bethlehem? He was not someone that Jesse expected to see. But Samuel directly approaches Jesse and his sons and invites them to the sacrifice. And so Jesse, what he does is he makes his sons pass by Samuel one son at a time to be consecrated or to be blessed. And how does he do this? From the oldest all the way to the youngest. And you see, for both Jesse, who was presenting his sons, and Samuel, who was on search, the secret search for a new king, for both of them, the qualifications they were looking for were still rooted in the outward cultural values. For Jesse, he had expected that his firstborn would be the one Samuel was looking for. And as the oldest, he should be the first in line to receive that first and best share of the blessing. So he sends his first, for, first along. And for Samuel, he expects that the firstborn must be obviously the first in line to be the new king that God had in store. And in fact, when he sees Eliab, he thinks, surely this is the one. This is who God sent me here for. He might have been thinking, there's no way he can't be the one. He fills the requirements. He's the firstborn. He's the head of the house. He has a double portion of inheritance and wealth. He has power. He has authority. He has influence. He has what it takes to lead a nation to war. Surely he must be the one who's going to establish the name of Israel. He must be worthy of our hope. But God, now God does not see as man sees. In Eliab, you see, Samuel was drawn to similar traits that he was drawn to when he saw Saul. Saul, who was the firstborn, who was wealthy, who was a head taller than anyone. And it's almost Samuel's instinctual reaction to automatically look for these outward markers again. But to this, God responds in verse 7. And this becomes the turning point in our narrative. God says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. It's a reminder from God that relying on the outward appearance and outward branding will only lead to rejection and disappointment as Saul ultimately fell away from the Lord. And this time around, Samuel needs to look past those things and look deeper into the heart. And that brings us to our second point, that God looks inward. The Lord looks on the heart. What does that mean? It means God doesn't make quick, superficial judgments based on cultural norms, cultural expectations. 1 Chronicles 28 says, For the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. God looks, 
for those who seek him wholeheartedly. In fact, kingly requirement for such a person is outlined in the Deuteronomic law uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17. God looks for someone who keeps his laws and commands close to his heart, who has a written copy of his law next to him at all times so that he can read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to fear the Lord and not turn aside to the left or right from his commands, both in his personal life and in his rule over the kingdom. So with that new criteria in mind, let's return to the scene of Jesse, his sons, and Samuel. There's a buildup of anticipation going on. You know, Jesse sends his firstborn son. He has the most confidence in Eliab. But then God says, that's not him. Definitely didn't expect to hear that. But that's okay. Jesse is like, okay, I have my second best in line. Abinadab, you're next. And he sends him. But God says, that's not him either. By this point, I'm, pretty, I'm, I'm sure that Jesse must have not known what was going on, but he continues to send out his third, his fourth, his fifth, down to his sixth, and then lastly, his seventh. But none of them make the cut in God's eyes. Now, it's interesting to note the number of sons that are recorded in our story. Back in this culture, the ideal number of sons was actually seven. We see this uh, in a couple of examples. Uh, In the book of Job, it's recorded that Job had seven sons to show just the completion of his family that he had. In the book of Ruth, Ruth is compared to be better to Naomi than if she were to have had seven sons. And so for Jesse, there's nothing more fitting or ideal than the seven sons that he presented to Samuel. Surely one of them had to be the one that Samuel was looking for. But to everyone's surprise, Samuel asks, is that it? Is there no one else? And so the buildup from this scene suddenly looks like it's become anticlimactic. But the story isn't done yet because Jesse replies to Samuel's question. There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's just keeping the sheep. There still remained the youngest, the smallest, the least, the runt of the pack. But he was so insignificant that he wasn't even considered to be called from the field to the sacrifice because the sacrifice was a matter with Samuel and the grown-ups. And it wasn't fitting for the youngest. The youngest didn't deserve to be here right now. In fact, it's interesting to see that the youngest doesn't even have a name even at this point in the narrative. He's just called the youngest. But Samuel tells Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Or another way to say that, or read that, is we will not leave this place until he gets here. What a reversal in the plot, a complete reversal in the cultural norms and expectations. The youngest, who was paid no attention by his family, all of a sudden becomes the center of attention for his family. Now everyone has to await and anticipate his arrival because Samuel, the prophet of God, this man of God, was about to do something extraordinary with the youngest. And this actually shows us how God works. 
God doesn't look at things and judge things based on the outward appearances. No, no, God looks deeper into the matters of the heart. He's more concerned about one's wholehearted devotion to him rather than one's list of accolades and accomplishments and their status in society. Recall the people of Israel first chose their king by doing it their way. We wanted a king like the nations, and so they chose Saul. But how did that end up? It became a major letdown because of the moral failure of Saul. But now God is taking up initiative by choosing a king for himself who doesn't look like all the other kings, but is a man after his own heart. God is not looking outward, but he's looking inward. And here's why that's so important. Because this reveals the love and the devotion that Jesse's youngest son had for God. This was unseen by the people around him, maybe by his family as well. But it was definitely noticed by God. The youngest treasured God's commands and meditated on them day and night, God's laws were sweet to his taste and sweeter than honey to his mouth. It was a lamp for his feet, a light on his path. The youngest delighted in all the decrees of God. And because the youngest loved the Lord with all of his heart, God would bless him and pour his spirit onto him. God would fill him up and empower him to be the eventual king of Israel. God would make a covenant promise with him one day to guarantee that his kingdom will endure and to raise up an offspring from whom God's love will never, ever depart. His offspring who would establish his throne forever. And so as we reach the end of our narrative, the youngest finally arrives. Jesse and all his sons watch as he comes running in and God tells Samuel, arise, Anoint him, for this is he. He's the one that I'm going to make the new king over my people. So Samuel anoints the young one in the presence of all who were there at that sacrifice. And the spirit rushes upon him, and his name is finally revealed in this climactic kind of fashion. This was David. David unlike Saul, would become one of the greatest heroes and kings of the Old Testament. He performed spectacular feats, like defeating Goliath and routing the Philistines. He'd eventually conquer all of the warring nations around them and establish a unified kingdom of Israel. David was a mighty warrior, but he was also a compassionate king who had a heart after God's own heart. But remember, all of this was set into motion with a single act of calling the youngest from the field when he was keeping his sheep. By what seemed foolish and absurd in that given cultural context for an ideal leader, God chose the weakest, the least respected son of the family. No stature, no, not much wealth at all or inheritance. He was small seemed incapable of bearing the hope of the entire nation on his shoulders. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. Outward appearances are nothing but trivial details to God. He cares more about the state of one's heart and love, of love and devotion to him. And it pleases God to choose such people to carry out his redemptive plan for humanity. But what's more, God's choosing of David was but a foreshadow, a preview of the true king that God had chosen to come into our world. The true king that had no semblance of any kind of kingly stature or royalty in the entire course of his life. His own neighbors would dismiss him saying, isn't this the son of a carpenter? He had the reputation of being a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was grouped together with the marginalized and outcasts of society. This descendant of David would also come from Bethlehem. In the book of Micah, it was prophesied by you, excuse me, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over all of Israel. The king would be born in a manger along with the rest of the livestock. He would be baptized and anointed by the Spirit of God which descends on him like a dove. He was a good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. In the final moments of his passion and his death, he had no outward appearance that drew anyone towards him. The book of Isaiah says, there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. His own would condemn him and crucify him onto a wooden cross for which it is said, cursed is anyone who hangs on a pole. With a sign over his head written, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, he would take his final breath and say, it is finished before he bowed his head and died for the sins of those who would believe in his name. And he'd be raised on the third day to conquer the final enemy of sin and death, overcoming the world. This is Jesus Christ, the true ruler and king from the line of David, whose heart was the heart of God, who loved the Father as the Father loved the Son, who perfectly obeyed his commands because he was the word of God himself who came to establish an everlasting kingdom that isn't built on outward appearances, but it flips all of society's values upside down, a kingdom that considers blessed, the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, the hungry, the thirsty, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, Christ is the king who is calling you into his kingdom today. A kingdom that doesn't look to outward appearances, but a kingdom that invites you to stop trying so hard to be accepted in this world, but to lay down your burdens before the king of kings because he is calling you to come as you are and commit your heart to loving him 
and being loved by him for the rest of eternity. And for those who do know him, Christ our King is calling you to submit to his authority and rule over all aspects of your life, to prioritize loving him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. For what truly matters in his kingdom is not the outward appearance, but the appearance of the heart. For there is no greater purpose or joy in this world than to love God and to love others. And so in this Advent season, we come full circle back to the little town of Bethlehem because this is where it all started. It started with young David, chosen by God to be his new king. And centuries and centuries later, three magi would come from the east and they would visit and arrive in Judah, asking, where is the one who has been born, the king of the Jews? And upon finding the child, they would bow down before him and worship him as the king of kings, whose name was Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you are a God who looks past our outer appearance of status and accomplishments. You look directly into the state of our hearts, for you desire a heart of love and obedience. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, into our world to live a life of perfect love and obedience, something that we could never do. For those of us who don't know you yet, we ask that you draw near to our hearts and reveal the beauty of our king's love. For those who are followers of Christ, we ask for you to help us submit every little detail of our lives to our King. May our greatest goal and purpose be to love you and look with anticipation to the day that our true King will once again return to reign and make all things new. And in the name of our King Jesus, we pray. Amen.